Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I speak with my friend Camille Leek, who's also our assistant teacher and community manager, about how political correctness doesn't really build our capacity, amongst many other things. People will ask me, okay, so should I apologize when I commit microaggressions? I personally don't recommend that. You know how I feel about apologies. And I say, I'm sorry. I actually recommend that you respond with gratitude and say, thank you. Can you help me understand? How do I get my intent in alignment with my impact. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast, where we discuss every aspect of life through the lens of somatic psychology, nutrition, and self-inquiry. My name is Luis Mojica, and I'm a somatic educator who teaches people how to find safety inside themselves so they can better navigate this strange and sensational human experience. Your time to learn begins now. What's up, Camille? Nothing much. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. What are we doing today? Um, well, this, and we got the course, week two of the course. Um, well, yeah, Monday is my HLN day, the course, and then the membership. Yeah. It <laughs> is. It's my meetings. day, too. Yeah. My HLN day. So it's like, it's like the big day, it feels mm-hmm. like, right? Yeah. I'm curious what I was thinking about you this morning. I was thinking like you, 
you've done group work for so long, you know, facilitating with people and you've done it in person, mostly is why you started. Mm-hmm. What's it like for you to do it virtually? How does it, how does it feel in your body when we're doing the course? And there's um, all those people like, what's that like for you? I, I mean, like most of us during COVID, we, we had to make the transition to, to doing virtual stuff. And particularly as it related to, to DEI work, the, the inclusion work, I was curious, like, how, how does that going to work? How am I going to transition things I was solely used to doing in person to a virtual space? And I was really skeptical uh, that, it, that it would work out. Um, but for me, it's actually turned out to be really good. For, for a couple of reasons. One, I think for me, I know I can become overwhelmed when I'm physically in space with people. So I actually find it can give me more capacity, um, particularly with, with larger groups of people to do it virtually as opposed to, to in person. Um, and then I've also found that for other folks, it gives them more capacity because they have more options. Like when we're face-to-face, like you have to be in that space as is. Whereas virtually people can turn off their their camera or they can turn down their volume or if they don't want to say something in person they can send me a chat like there were just so there was there was a lot more variability and it allowed for more diversity of learning and communication um so I've really enjoyed it and actually now I'm curious to see going back the other way how my body responds when I start doing more important in person stuff um yeah I'm, I'm curious about that yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you said. Because when I was training to be an SE therapist, I it was all in person. It was in New York City. So it was a lot of people, big city. And I remember how that felt in my body, how there wasn't this really easy place to go to, um, just to settle, like to get a boundary. Like you might be able to leave the room, but then you're in a hallway with all these people mm-hmm. walking through. Whereas when I'm at home now and I'm assisting these trainings, I just turn off my camera. And I start doing yoga on the floor while I'm listening to the audio until I'm needed. And yeah. so, they're, 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 you know, as, and I, I'm always similar to you. I'm always looking for ways of, well, okay, how can I, how can I have more capacity for reality? Because I don't want to keep myself from not being with people, uh, even though it's easier to be on the screen for me. Um, and so I'm loving, again, our, our creating safety in, in the self practice is where it's at for me. Because mm-hmm. if I'm like, what, what would stop me from doing yoga in the room? What are people thinking? That, that's what would stop me. Yeah. But if I'm not attuning to that, if I'm attuning to just doing yoga in the room, like I could still this incredible experience of a boundary. So I'm kind of like using what do I do in my house? Can I bring that to a visceral location? Right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, you, you, you shared, um, like an experience you had with that in, in doing in-person work, you know, just in, in your body, the back and forth, like I want to lie down, but should I, is that, is that professional? Um, and I love the reaction you got from the participants. We're like, Oh, thank you so much because it modeled the behavior and modeled what we're talking about in HLN. And so that was really um, impactful for me just to hear your experience with that. Because even now I'm thinking about, um, when I'm doing in-person work, one of my things that I anticipate happening is that my body will become overwhelmed just by the sheer amount of people. And one of the things I think I want to do is even just acknowledge it. Mm. I say, oh, I want to take a breath. I'm just, there are a lot of people in this space right now. And I just want to take a moment to 
orient to that or allow my body to settle. Like even just something like that, modeling that kind of behavior, that's what, what I'm thinking about. And like, even as I think about it, you know, not in the moment, of course, right now, but I can feel like a dissipation of that potential charge. Like, oh, there's so many people here. That's really overwhelming. Let me just acknowledge that. Not to fix it, not to change it, but just speak to it. Like, oh, this is really overwhelming for me. And to notice like how, if it's overwhelming for other people and just see, that's the piece right there. Like when you pause, everyone else gets to attune and notice like in the membership, we had Dr. Abby Blakesley and in her, for those of you listening or watching, um, in her segment, she was specializing in medical trauma. And she was just teaching us a bit about it because that was the theme in our in our membership last month. Um, and in the very beginning, what the fire alarm in her building went off. And she had this real-time moment of activation. And she called it out. She walked us through it. What was she's took she even pulled back so we can see her body and she was showing us like see how my legs my arms are shaking a little bit i'm just gonna be with that it was so settling and Mm -hmm. when the person holding the space is doing something decolonial really which is i'm gonna relate to my body even though i'm supposed to be the dominating expert that doesn't feel that's perfect that doesn't get upset her modeling that a lot of my body to say oh i'm allowed to do that in this session too I don't have to override my body. It was so gorgeous. So that Mm -hmm. the modeling to me is even more important than what we say. Oh, yeah. Actions speak louder than words. So So much. Yeah. 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 That's so cool. I'm just, I'm just letting us swirl. (laughs) And I'm imagining being in one of your sessions, like let's say at an office, right? Or some like corporate building. And I just think how far out it would be for them you know, who work 10, 12, 14, 16 hour days, lots of coffee, like missing lunch, staring at computers, deadlines, rushing around, meetings, meetings. And then here they are learning about diversity, but really having a pause to learn, well, what's my capacity to learn about diversity? Like how much can you teach them without capacity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that's a big part of it for me. Um, and a lot of times they want to skip over <laughs> that, that part of, of, of capacity. But increasingly, I want, I've been seeing more openness to, to some of that, those types of workshops I want to do around diversity and inclusion, like recognizing our capacity to be have the ability to be with someone else's trauma or someone else's mm-hmm. marginalization. Um, do I recognize my own capacity? Like if I'm going to bypass my own capacity, I'm certainly going to bypass somebody else's. So even starting there and noticing if people have the space or the capacity for that has been interesting in a virtual space. And again, I'd love to see how that translates to an in-person space. Um, Because even traditionally, like when you're doing workshops, there's always this fear of dead air. Like you ask a question and nobody responds or, you know, you're just, you're always trying to feel the air. So one of my practices when I even first got into it before I really knew knew about somatics was to get comfortable with the silence. Mm. Um, And that was really uncomfortable for for people. And now I really love the idea of getting comfortable, (laughs) of being in the silence. Like if somebody asks a question or shares an experience, I am now in a place where I really, let's be with that for a little bit before I digest, before I, I reflect, before I ask for other responses. Let's just sit with that and notice what does it feel like to hear that person's question? Or what does it hear, feel like to hear that person's experience? Mm-hmm. 
I love that. And those of you listening, this is kind of like a mini somatic mentoring you know, session we're going through. Because <laughs> those of you who wanted to bring more somatics into your, your practice or whatever it is you do, if you're a teacher and any kind of space you hold, having a sense of um, comfort and capacity for what you're calling the dead air, that creates such a container for people who are with you to settle into rather than activating them to keep the silence away and then leaving thinking I did a good job when really we're just activating ourselves, not actually feeling and integrating into the information. Mm -hmm. And when I think of you walking in there and saying, whoa, a lot of people here, okay, I feel a little, let's take five minutes. Let's all take five minutes just to feel what the room feels like together. You're helping everyone as you are yourself attune to the space and the environment and people around them something we never do in any anywhere sometimes but especially in work environments and that oh, no. attunement tells you everything it tells you like how i feel about the person next to me at my desk what my boundaries are over how close i sit to my computer do i notice when i'm thirsty right like so many biological needs are, show, show themselves through sensation without attunement there's no experience of sensation so you don't even know what you're needing oh absolutely like i mean it was even in fact, it was this time last, last year that I took yeah. the course and even just the simple act of orienting when you come into the space asking students, um, notice what you need. Do you need to go to the bathroom? Do you need something to drink? Do you need something to eat? Do you want to lie down? Do you want to change the lighting? Does your body need to shift? And like just even those prompts um, is different because course in the, the academic world the corporate world is okay nine o'clock let's get started doesn't really matter what your body needs we have stuff to do um but just pausing even for one two three minutes at the beginning and asking those questions and mm. again like you were saying modeling it noticing oh yeah actually i, I do want to shift i want to change the lighting for for myself um i i i found really impactful and Again, I notice some people don't have the capacity for it. Like even virtually when I start sessions, they usually start about three minutes after the hour. And there are some people who will put in the comment section, oh, so we're just condoning people who are showing up late now. Or we're just, uh, you know, because during this time I invited yeah. them to get settled and all that stuff, but they just, no, we need to get started. Like. <laughs> It's like we already did get started. That feeling in your body. Yes. <laughs> That's where we've begun Learn our somatic it. exercise. Yeah. That's right. Oh, I love it. You know, I you're I'm thinking of the first time I ever did the SE training, the first weekend in New York City. It was like a four-day intensive. And I remember my teacher, Maureen Gallagher, who you you're learning with and who was on my podcast. I remember she said, she said something like, this isn't like school that you're used to. Mm. She's like, if you have to go to the bathroom, you go. If you have to stretch, you stretch. If you yawn, you yawn. Like you listen to your body. And I thought, whoa, this is the first time an educator has ever said this to me in a room. And I have such a history of educational trauma. You know, I, I went to Catholic school and I had Tourette syndrome. If you're twitching and humming in Catholic school, you're possessed. Like they were not cool with that. So uh, there was no way for me to feel like it was okay to have those biological needs. Uh, you couldn't go to the bathroom, you know, unless the teacher said you were allowed to. You had to have hall pass. And then even before that, I was in a daycare that was highly abusive. And if you moved or laughed during movie time, you had to stand with your hands in the air for the rest of the movie. And they actually got shut down. Like it was straight up abuse. They would beat us. It was like a nightmare. Oh, and goodness. I don't remember most of it because it was so traumatic. I had these little moments. Snippets, yeah. Yeah, but my body was so conditioned from that. And then Catholic school. 
and then public school to leave my body and override it when I'm in an educational setting so I don't get punished. So when you even say, when I hear you saying to me what I say to the students, you know, get a drink. Do you have to go to the bathroom? Like turn your camera off and lay down in bed if you want to. I feel how soothing that sounds. And that's so exciting for me to teach people. And eventually then it goes into their their lives and their professions. I get to listen to this body. Mm -hmm. I mean, doesn't it amaze you now that we do this work, like how the majority of the world, it's actually, it's having pride, not listening to the body. Yes. Does it amaze you now that you're doing this so much? it, It does. Like when I watch... When I watch how much we all bypass our body's needs and pride ourselves on our ability to do so, it is, for lack of a better word, it, it's sad to me. Mm. Um, it's it, it's sad um, and unfortunate that this is what we 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 pride ourselves upon, or um, it then gets to a point where then we don't even know to listen to our body because like you were saying we've been so conditioned like even now i catch myself when uh again you were orienting like a week ago and for whatever reason i noticed actually i do want to turn the lights off and there's a part of me that's like no you have to keep your ring light on you're the facilitator keep it professional <laughs> uh, like even even yeah. in the midst of this work even with the awareness like i can feel both parts of the of my body doing that and so to, to witness other people do it, even without that awareness, like this is just what life is. Like, mm-hmm. um, I remember, it's, it's funny how quotes stay with you. I remember an individual saying, this is what being an adult is, doing things you don't like so you mm-hmm. can eat. Oh, and yeah. I think that is the, the mentality mostly, like this is just what it is. You have to do things you don't like to live, such is life. Yeah. Oh, is it? Is it that? that and those feels, people get mad yeah. at you. Yes, when, they do. They get, when yeah. you stop doing what you don't like, they're like, well, who the hell do you think you are? That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> who are you to turn off your lights? Who are, who you? are you to get up and stretch? Who are you to say, <laughs> yeah. I'm actually tired today? You know? Yeah. 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 I, I've, I've had a couple, weirdly enough, only a couple. I have really cool friends. And so as I go through my own transformations, they get inspired to try their own out. And then we kind of like transform our, you know, conditionings together. But I've had a couple of people that are like, this is a hard boundary for me. You know, if you're going to cancel things, that's, we can't be friends. I'm like, yeah. we can't be friends. Then. I'm going to cancel. Yeah. I am a canceler. Um, because, and I'm also someone that shows up, you know, obviously, but it's like, if it doesn't work for my body, I want to, I want to create a culture, even if it's a tiny little subculture of 10 mm-hmm. people, I want to create a culture where it's, it's completely okay to listen to the body and to have capacity for being disappointed when someone listens to their body. Yeah. You know, if I'm really excited to go to open mic night with my best friend, he's like, my stomach's acting up, I'm dizzy, I have too much anxiety, I don't want to go. I want to have the capacity to to let the disappointment move through me so I don't grasp it and try to change his mind and tell a story about how he always cancels on me. Yeah. But just be like, oh, this is an opportunity to go alone. Maybe I'm leaning on him to feel safe about going. Maybe I should try myself. I want that flexibility. And so I, I wonder for you, because I imagine that you're, you've been in the corporate world. You have this flight response that you've been like me, that we've been rewarded for having. You get a lot of stuff done. People, I'm assuming people around you as you were growing up are like, you're the smart one. Good job. You always do that. How do they respond to you? Like family, friend, people have known you for a while as you're becoming more 
um, <laughs> settled into your body and actually saying no sometimes, or I don't feel like it, or I'm going to be an hour late. Like, what, what what's that like? Yeah, so it, it's been interesting. Like, for, particularly my husband, what he was the he was the first one, you know, because we, we're around each other all the time to, to really start noticing some of these changes, and it made him uncomfortable because. For those of you who don't know, a big old Virgo, and he's a big old Gemini. Uh, and he was uh, like, wait, this is starting to bother me because I feel like you're taking on some Gemini characteristics. <laughs> and now I'm supposed to be the Virgo. This isn't working for oh, me. Yeah. Um, so so there was reversal. that dichotomy. Like, you're supposed to be the organized one. Like, I'm the one that gets to ebb and flow. Um, so there was a little bit of that. And I even, there was even in a time where um, a group of thin friends, several of us, were going to go out for drinks and dinner uh, a Friday night. And I just didn't have the capacity. It was a long week. It was a long Friday. And I even knew like, if I went, I'd be going out of obligation. I wouldn't enjoy mm. it. And there was a possibility I might bring down other people. So I didn't go. And then a couple of weeks later, when this group of friends got together again, one of them said, um, or they were talking about something that had happened at that event. And then one of them said, oh yeah, this is the one you couldn't come to. And I get to like, she took it personally, like it was an affront to her, I guess, because it was, it wasn't her birthday. That's not why we were getting together, but maybe it was like right before her birthday or something like that. And um, I get to tell like, oh, you think this is about you. Uh, I didn't come. And this means that I don't care about you, Um, which is, which is interesting. Cause again, I think it's that, that overcoupling that a Mm -hmm. lot of us have with recognizing my body's capacity. That's right. That's right. And how did you navigate that? Um, it was an observation. It was a data point. She, you know, she made her comment. I was like, okay, it is what it is. I have, I didn't feel the need to apologize at all. Um, I didn't. And I also noticed like, I didn't feel the need to make her feel better. So Mm. even outside Mm. of apologizing, say, Oh, well, you know, next time I didn't feel the need to explain myself because very much like in my diversity and inclusion work, it was really immediately apparent to me, like that's her work to deal with. It really didn't have anything to do with me. There was really nothing I could have said or done that would have made her feel better. There is something else sort of underlying the undercouple or the overcoupling she has about mm-hmm. me and not showing up at that particular friend dinner. I, I also sense, and I've had this in my own experience, there's a gentleness in those moments when you don't project what this person needs you to do, mm-hmm. right? Because if they have a tone or they say something, unless she says to you, like, I feel horrible. Will you sit with me and process this? Like if there's yeah. no request, for you to assume it's time to do something about it is also a projection onto her, right? That could yeah. be a little smothering if she's not open already. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and because I'm autistic, I'm super literal. If, if people don't ask me a <laughs> Which question. Which furthers the yeah, trigger. Like, I don't respond. Like, I really love how, how you, when we're, when we're conversing, you'll say, and what's coming up for you? Because I'm like, oh yeah, what is coming up for me? It wouldn't occur to me to respond unless I had that prompt. And so, yeah, she if she didn't have a question, there wasn't something like, can you help me understand why you didn't come? Or um, maybe you didn't know, but it was my birthday or, or, you know, there was nothing Mm -hmm. like that. So to your point, there was no, at least from what I could perceive a desire to either understand my experience or for her to share further with me, her experience. One of my, my, so one of my favorite friends, he was my very close friend for a while and he moved to Vermont. I've seen him a little bit and he used to be a saxophone player. Well, he is an amazing saxophone player. He used to play saxophone with me and we'd perform um he is he's a trans man and he's 
so like what would they call in the trans community like passing privilege like he just you would never even suspect on any level that he wasn't born in a man's body mm-hmm. and and we talk about this a lot and i'm prefacing this because <clears throat> before he got a hysterectomy which is like for him the final frontier um i remember we were in this green room with all these artists um waiting to perform and we were all these people and we're all just like sitting there hanging out and no one knew he was trans like unless he said it you just would have no no way to know and out of nowhere and he's autistic out of nowhere he just says it was something like and it was like so like no affect just like straight up like it, it might have even been like i'm glad we're playing now because i won't have the energy after my hysterectomy on friday and it was like and everyone's like, what do you mean you're hysterectomy? Like, what are you talking about? Just drop that in the- <laughs> just dropped it. And he would just drop these things. I mean, that's like one example all over the place. And I loved it. Like, I would just sit there and watch people be baffled by his mind because there was no, um, there was no awareness of titration. Mm. Like, there's no, like, skirting around a situation to not offend and then his his go-to line, like we used to call it like his pull string. Like if he was a doll and you had a pull string, it would be like, am I offending you? Because he was always asking people, did I just offend you? Because he had no idea to know if he offended anybody. And it was just so wonderful. And it, it would just it would just settle my body so much. And I was thinking about it this morning before we were talking, because I was... I wanted to ask her. I know Marika's answer. She's not here. I won't answer for her, but um, she's actually texted us. She's stuck in traffic, but um, so maybe she'll pop in. But I, I was wondering, like, what is your is it take experience, belief, practice of political correctness? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm curious. Like, where do you go with it personally? How do you how do you navigate it? Like, as an autistic person, as a DEI, you know, facilitator. Yeah, okay. like, <laughs> to me, those are two different worlds. So, like, what is that like for you? Yeah. So, um, political correctness. It's it's a word for or, or a phrase for me that is so super super loaded um, that I personally don't strive to be politically correct. What I do personally strive to do is to seek to understand. And mm-hmm. as as an autistic person, I recognize that there are just some things I won't understand. Particularly, I don't always understand people's emotional reactions to things. Um, not that their emotions are necessarily invalid, but some things just they don't seem logical to They're me. They're just not getting it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just I don't get it. I don't understand why this is is bothering you or why mm-hmm. this is a big deal. Can can you help me understand? Mm. And from my own personal experience with that, that's what I now coach other people with, like particularly around the idea of microaggressions. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, People ask me, okay, so should I apologize when I commit microaggressions? I personally don't recommend that. You know how I feel about apologies. Yeah, and, yeah. and I say, I'm sorry. I actually recommend that you respond with gratitude and say, thank you. Can you help me understand? How do I get my intent in, in alignment with my impact? Or can you help me understand what this microaggression stems from? Usually some historical remnant mm-hmm. of a macro system of oppression. So that's where how it's informed my practice can we stay in a place of humility can we stay in a place of curiosity and can we stay mm. in a place of gratitude Ooh, i love that because i love so many parts of that i love first of all i'm not politically correct i seek to understand like that's exactly my sentiment that's so gorgeous 
because the segueing into microaggressions, what's microaggressive to you is not to someone else. Yes. And it's like, and even to the same demographic, like one yes. black woman has a different experience as a black woman. One white man has a different experience from white. Like there's different experiences. There the thought that there's like a monolithic experience to me is actually fundamentally racist. I think we're so much more complex and, and maybe not racist, prejudice. I don't like to make it about race. Like there's yeah. so many levels of diversity. Exactly. Like you it know? could be, because um, I mean, you, you, like even just certain terms like queer and the LGBTQ plus community. Some folks who love the word queer totally identify with it. Feels like it embodies all of them. And there are some just like, no, that is offensive to me. It bothers me. Yeah. And so there's still that debate. Or like one I personally experience is with my hair. I have no problem referring to my hair as dreadlocks or mm -hmm. dreads. And it doesn't offend me when other people refer to it that way. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. I know there is a large, large portion of Black people, particularly within the United States, who feel really, really offended by the term dreadlock or dreads. And so am I cautious when I'm interacting with Black Americans about how I refer to their hair? Yeah, I will consciously try to make an effort to refer to it as locks if I don't know them personally. Um, but for Black people outside the United States, I also know I have a bit more leeway. The mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. microaggression isn't necessarily there. That's why I love curiosity, because if I just assume okay, I saw this thing on the news or I heard this thing in a circle or I saw this thing on Instagram that says like, like, like you, I'll use your example, like don't call them dreadlocks. Yes, That's one person's experience. But if I'm curious, I get to learn, well, what do you call them? You know, and, and to me, when I hear seek to understand, I also in that I hear I seek to relate. And to me, political correctness is actually a, a form of domination. It's these like really strict, walls so you don't offend mm -hmm. and it doesn't allow your your spirit to shine through because you're so constricted and activated and really in a freeze response and fawn trying to make people feel good about you whereas my my favorite connections i've ever made have come through conflict like i mean you see me in some with people i i don't i haven't seen you in any yet but it's like like you know in the course or membership or that where you just say something that it, it it drives a stake into someone's nervous system because it reminds them of a, it's an overcoupling and mm -hmm. it's it's it might be connected to the same words that have been used against them to oppress them in a hateful way that could all be true and that's not i'm not part of that lineage for me but i'm a part of it for them and this is like the complexity of relationships to me is one person has so many universes inside of them that cannot be summed up with one title or demographic, with one way to, to connect. So political correctness to me isn't a way to connect. It's like, it's like the bumpers at a bowling alley. And sometimes they're necessary. Like I, I don't, I'm not telling people not to be politically correct. I'm just saying for me, it doesn't help me build capacity for conflict. And it doesn't, it doesn't invite me to a deeper relationship and curiosity with another person. Yes. Is that what, yeah, right. That, that, that is, mm, love that. Because what will oftentimes happen is I'll go into a space where I'm doing an inclusion workshop, maybe particularly about microaggressions. And then I get this question. Can you give me a list of every single microaggression in the world? <laughs> so no. I don't do something wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I can't. And and I personally have no desire to do that because that's, for me, that is political correctness. Tell me everything I shouldn't do and then that's I right. won't do it. And, and for me, that just feels a couple of things. One, it feels really binary. It feels like either it's right or wrong and it doesn't allow for that nuance, that mm. gray, which I think is just, 
reality that's like and juicy and juicy yeah like why so why would like one person really identify with the term queer but another yes. does help me understand that history what yes. led up to to the change in perceptions um and then for me it also speaks to a lot of us have the need whether it comes to inclusion or somatic work to check it off i'm that's healed right. I know every microaggression, I don't have to invest in this anymore. And for me, both inclusion and somatic work is a forever journey. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no finish line. I tell people all the time, there are things I used to say and do that I no longer say and do because someone called me in or I learned something. And there are things I'm saying and do to, doing today that maybe two, three years from now, I won't say and do because mm-hmm. I'll learn some more. And that is just a continuing part of my journey. You know, another thing that was coming up for me today when I was thinking of political correctness and inclusion, the, the majority of people, majority, that I um, relate to, see, interact with, they tend to be like liberals. They tend to be Democrats. And um, I'm like laughing in my mind when I'm, just, when I'm formulating all this because we talk so much in these like left spaces about... Um, the Republicans needing to understand us, but we don't talk about us needing to understand them. Mm. And I, I see that as like a massive opportunity that's just wasted. Uh, because one of the best experiences I ever had, I'm kind of coming out right now with this, uh, was in... <laughs> look, I'm you're, so you're, excited. I can't wait. it in. <laughs> um, in 2008, I went independent so I could vote for a Republican, which is going to like shock most people listening. Oh my gosh. Are you ready for the Instagram? Comments? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> Y'all are going to come for me. I'm, I'm okay for it. Like I can handle it. And the reason why I did was because of one policy he had. And I didn't, I knew he wasn't even going to get elected and he didn't, he wasn't even close, but there was this one policy. It was to decriminalize all drugs. Yeah. And the second policy was under the decriminalization to not just make them all legal, but anyone that's ever been convicted spending time in bars for them would be released immediately. And I was like, that is the most radical, beautiful thing I've ever heard from anyone running. I don't care if they're, I don't care who they are. Like, that's the beginning for me when I think of trauma to start healing some of the systemic and even racist oppression through the, the legal system of drugs. So I was lit up and I thought, I want to meet other people who like this guy. Like this is, I I met so many Republicans. I spent so much time with Republicans uh, in their homes, at meetings, like at the voting booth, like all these different places. And these people and I had so much in common. And I had dreadlocks at the time. I had all these facial piercings. I wore more makeup then. I was like very obviously queer and strange. And they loved me. And we could talk about things like they were super uh, pro-life and I was super pro-choice. And we mm-hmm. talked to, and we talked about it. And we had these beautiful connections. And I'm, so I'm just saying all this because where is inclusion in a 360 in your, in your realm? Like where, where do you hold that or notice it not being held because, and I'm projecting, but it's <laughs> assuming like living in a lot of left circles. Like, yeah. th- tell me about that. Yeah. Oh, so many things. So um, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm one, sure. what's coming up for me is a big part of my practice when I talk about cultivating a space for inclusion is exactly what you did. Understanding the difference between a conversation and a debate. Mm. Oftentimes, I mean, how many times have we been told, have we been taught, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics? Why? Because the only reason you would do that if you, is if your intent was to change somebody else's perception. 
But what if our intent was simply to share and we literally walk away with the exact same beliefs we came in with? Is sim- simply seeking to understand or seeking to, to hear about someone else's experience. For me, that is a critical part of being able to have the capacity to be with difference, understanding that they may not be ch- trying to change your opinion, or at the very least, your intent is not to change theirs. It's simply to share yours or to be in space with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I really appreciate it, um, your observation of your experience, because I had a very similar experience in the wake of COVID. Um, Cause you're right. You know, I spent a lot of time in predominantly left or liberal liberal spaces. And it was really interesting for me to observe a lot of left and liberal spaces that promote being open to different people, beliefs, behaviors, have a very, what I would say, non-open stance or view when it came to the vaccine now did i Mm -hmm. choose to get vaccinated i did after sitting down and understanding how i felt about it speaking with my husband um that was a choice that i made for me making that choice didn't necessarily mean that someone didn't who didn't make that same choice was a bad person Mm -hmm. yet that is what i was consistently and persistently hearing in predominantly liberal and left spaces And it just really, really felt, for lack of a better word, very hypocritical to me. Mm -hmm. It felt like this was an opportunity to really practice what we preach, being open to different perspectives, experiences, lifestyles, behaviors. But when it came to this one thing, it was this, no, if you don't do this, you're bad, you're irresponsible, um, you're intentionally trying to hurt other people. There was no space to have conversation about, well, what has been your experience with the um with medicine? That's right. With medical trauma. Or what has even been your experience just with vaccines? Or just to even allow someone that's the space to say, I mean, this vaccine has been created really, really quickly. I know I saw the president took it, a lot of people took, but fundamentally this was created in six months and no vaccine has ever been created that quickly. I'm a little nervous about that there was no space for someone to be able to articulate that i love i love this so much because it's fun. like i when i think of our polit it's so funny we're talking about politics i feel like i can talk about anything with you but <laughs> when there's there's two sides which is the really the problem two sides like we mm-hmm. need integration but when there's the left and right and i think of a liberal and a conservative if we think of that somatically like liberal would suggest expansion and conservative would suggest constriction. <laughs> I'm not saying that conservatives are constricted and liberals are expansive. I'm saying, I guess what I'm actually saying is they're both medicine that we need, right? There are times we need to conserve and constrict. There are times we need to expand and liberate. And when I think about living in America with these two big opposing polar forces, I probably said this a million times, I, I, there's no way to do it without the practice of capacity for difference. Like there's no way to do it uh, unless the way we're doing it now predominantly, which is like fighting and watching different news networks tell us how to feel about the other side, um, which is just another form of, of prejudice and bias for me. But, but to really go into this integral place of, okay, how are they both medicine? And how can I as an individual use both medicines and learn from both medicines and not agree or disagree, but kind of just like feel into where it resonates for me when I hear them speak or where it doesn't. And when you're talking about conversations instead of debates, 
that's, I think, having the openness for a conversation, again, the somatic experience of that, it's one of having a capacity to receive something that you might not want to hear or haven't heard before. And when I think of political correctness, it's like, tell me everything to do so no one gets triggered, including me. And there is, and this kind of feels like that safe space conversation we had with Marika last time. There is literally no capacity being built. And for all of you listening, capacity is that space inside of us, that charge and sensation from overwhelming events gets to move through. And the more space we have, the, the quicker it moves through and doesn't get stuck. So we don't get as stressed out. We don't have the symptoms of triggers and we don't get traumatized. But we can't build that capacity without actual charge to relate to. Like we actually need the charge to build the capacity. When we have political correctness, we're taking space from charge. We're pausing the option for charge, which sometimes is great if you can't handle it. I respect that. But it doesn't actually build capacity on an individual or collective collective level. So I, I just like, I can't say that enough because we're expected in the trauma world to create safe space and true safe space is like, I'm going to teach you how to have capacity for things you don't like. Mm. And that doesn't mean <laughs> I have to say it doesn't mean you put up with abuse. Having capacity for abuse is different than allowing abuse. It means the abuse happens and I have a space inside of me. So I don't have to feel that abuse for decades it moves through me and I move away or I get help, you know, whatever it is I do. Where do you go with that? Like around safe space and capacity and political correctness and stuff? Yeah, yeah. You, um, th- there's a reason I'm a big proponent of, of, of a brave space as opposed to a safe space because I, I feel a lot of people interpret safe spaces as I'll never have to experience rupture or even healing. Okay, yes. trauma healing means I'll never have to experience rupture. Yes. For me, that's not healing because that's not, reality rupture repair for 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 me is a rhythm a cycle that is just part of life and for me the 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 healing comes from having the capacity to experience the rupture and then like you were saying knowing what it means for me to repair after that mm. do even if it's it, it, even if it's a boundary violation okay experience the the boundary violation how do i reassert my boundaries now do, do I leave? Do, do I confront the person? You know, whatever it may be, but having the capacity to do that um, as opposed to going into a traumatized state. Um, because again, like, yeah, the, the absence of rupture to me isn't necessarily happiness. And I feel that's, that's mm, also what people equate mm. it to. Like if I just never experience rupture again, I'll be happy. One, I don't think that's possible. That's just not, it's statistically going into my autistic brain. It's statistically improbable that that you will ever experience. And two, there is a lot for me, there is joy. There is, there's beauty in the rupture and and repair. You know, even, even watching something as simple as like a, a, a nature show where, yeah, I see this lion hawk down this gazelle there's that rupture but then i get to see the beauty of the lion feeding themselves and feeding them their cubs like that's how how i perceive it Ooh, i just want to let let everyone feel that and notice when you all feel that like is there a rupture in you as you hear that is there activation is there like how can she say that or is there like yes camille like either's fine just notice what's happening in your bodies yeah i love i think I'm hearing a lot of what you said. The the one I'm highlighting 
is um, not having rupture. Happiness does not equate to not experiencing ruptures. I see the the desire to not experience rupture. That's what creates spiritual bypassing, mm. right? What people call toxic positivity. That's yeah. why that exists because you're so afraid of rupture yes. and you don't know what to do with it. So you cling everywhere you can to not get near it. True safety, true happiness, true confidence, true security for me is knowing I can handle rupture and I can handle joy. What's the problem? Like, what's the fear of moving through life if I can be with both? There's nothing stopping me. It's like there's nothing in my way because if I'm afraid someone's going to hate me, but I have capacity to be hated, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. I mean, that's real liberty for me. Yes. Right? Yes. (laughs) It's like it doesn't get any more gooey than that. Rather than I have to build my life and limit my life in such a way because rupture is something I can't handle. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the biggest trick and mis- and like honest, innocent misunderstanding with, with trauma healing and stress and resilience and such is thinking that safe spaces are the way we heal. Safe spaces give us a pause, which is very vital depending on where you are in your life. You know, there are many times I've created a safe space for myself where I said, I know this person or this environment or this group is not going to trigger me. That's what I need right now. And then that safe space and the capacity I got from it gave me capacity to go into other spaces where I didn't know what was going to happen. Yes. If we're only attuning to the ones that are safe and not going to the other, we're only building our capacity for predictable comfort. And again, all these other addictions, all these other things are born from only being able to handle comfort. We yes. want to be okay with, and we want to find beauty in pain. Like when you say it's beautiful, I think you said it's beautiful to you. <clears throat> I couldn't agree. Like why can't death and losing my job and someone hating me be as like gorgeous and interesting as a flower or yeah. making money? Like why do they have to be different? Yes. This is where I meet your autism. I'm like, I don't get the binary. <laughs> I don't get <laughs> it. It, it is exists. illogical to me. It's illogical. <laughs> Like, like we're probably illogical to 90% of people, but like, I don't, I can't even fathom why it has to be different. Hey, my friends, I'm so excited to announce that my next six week course begins on February the 6th. Registration opens on January 12th. This course will teach you how to eat to restore your nervous system, how to find safety in yourself, how to tell the difference between threat response and intuition. And you'll leave the course with over a dozen audio exercises, PDFs, and replays for review. You'll also be invited into the membership space where you get to spend time with me and my team, learning, practicing, sharing, and being supported all throughout the week. For more information, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com and click the course. Now let's get back to the episode. Yes. Right? I, I I don't I don't I guess um yeah I I don't get why it has to be different why it has to be this this is good this is bad um and it, it really is like I know I harp on this a lot but yeah finding the safety in your body for me again it was just so it was I'll say simple, but it's not always simple. It was it was simple, but unlocking. Like mm. to know that whatever I experience, 
I'm going to be okay. And I know a mm. lot of people will hear that and say, like, you're bypassing, but, but it's not necessarily bypassing. I know no. that I will experience rupture. I know this. And I know that I now have the capacity to be with that rupture, even if it's something as quote unquote extreme as let's say I get a phone call in a minute that says my seven-year-old child had died. I will grieve for that because I had a, an attachment, an idea of what I thought I was going to be doing with Malcolm, my seven-year-old. That's right. And I also know I have the capacity to be with that, to be with that transition. Um, and and yeah, a lot of people don't understand that they'll say it's bypassing or one that we get a lot that can be triggering is about systemic oppression or global yeah. events. How can you possibly, you know, say that you feel safe or you... Um, uh, you know, you feel calm or grounded when all these things are happening in, in the world. And, and we've talked about this in, in other episodes, but and we'll it, talk it about it now. more. And we'll continue to talk about it. You know, <laughs> yeah. there will be that rupture and I can repair from it. Um, yeah. No, I'm just loving this. Yeah. I, I, I think those of you listening, so there's an episode, episode number 10, which has the original finding the safety exercise. We've updated it since then for the course, but, um, Anyone who's who's hearing what Camille's saying, you're like, well, I either especially those who are like, I disagree. Listen to episode ten because it's not a debate at all. It's our experience. And when you go to episode ten and you start practicing the finding safety, you start to notice this this way we say it's simple. This is how I see it as simple. The simple part is you notice the difference between grasping for safety outside of me compared to finding safety inside of me. And then once you notice that difference, you just catch yourself in the moment, right? So I notice I'm resisting something in reality because I want that thing to be safer than it is. And in that resistance and, and pushing against this reality, I'm creating activation in myself. But if I look at, again, I, how many times have I said this by Angela quote? If you, if you can change something, change it. No question. If you can't change it right now, change your attitude. And when it comes to the finding the safety exercise, that's my how. When someone's like, well, how do you change your attitude? It's the finding the safety. So you are, let's say you're homophobic, not you, but whoever the yeah. you is out there, someone out there is homophobic, which I've experienced many times as a queer boy growing up. It, and many times they were my source of safety. They need to be okay with me or I can't feel safe in the world. And I literally lived in an oppressed psyche and so and somatic experience of constriction, not painting my nails, not listening to the music I wanted to listen to because I constantly felt under threat because I knew they were out there. But then I started finding the safety in myself and I realized even if they're out there, can I love the homosexual in me so much more than they hate it? And in that safety and that literally building capacity, it's just so seamless. If someone screams the F word out of a car, which they have done to me because yeah. the way I look or walk or act or whatever, it's like I, I almost laugh because I realize how scared they are. Like that's their pain trying to attach to me. Yeah. So what Camille's saying here is it by, bypassing would be pretending it wasn't happening. Bypassing would be me saying there are no homophobics in the world. Somatics makes it impossible to bypass because you are so grounded in the sensational reality second to second. So when that person yells the F word to me and I'm hearing it and I'm seeing them, and then I attune to the safety inside of me, 
I'm not bypassing what they said. I'm reorienting from their truth about me back to my truth about me. And that's very different than bypassing. Is that how you experience it with race and such, like in your experiences? Yeah, yeah, it it was. um... And again, I know this can be really triggering to people because they'll say, well, this isn't reality. But to your point, I began to notice like there was so much safety I was looking for outside of my body, particularly in the form of money or a particular job, or legislation, or the mm. absence of racism, mm. sexism, and Islamophobia. And, and there, there were a couple of things that happened in, in my journey. One, just like you said, when you feel the safety coming from inside of you, like it was, I will never remember it. I will always remember it. It was the first class. And I was like, I've listened to all his podcasts. First class, it's not going to teach me nothing new. Let's get to week two, week three, and get into the hard stuff. Um, And you walk us through finding the safety. And there was this ridiculous release in my Mm. body of Mm. really like, oh my gosh, like it is always within me. And it took me back Mm. to this experience I had when I was, when I was a child, I was outside playing in the rain and it was just this ridiculous, ridiculous, safe, grounded feeling of being in the mud, being in the rain, and nothing else really mattered in that moment. And to oh, it was overwhelming to an extent, but to know that I could always, always tap into to, to that sensation or that feeling, regardless of what I'm experiencing outward, um, helped me to understand that, frankly, waiting for there to be no racism or sexism or Islamophobia, for me, isn't life. Like I'll always be holding my breath. I'll always, or mm. um, waiting for, a, 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 if money is supposed to be my sense of safety, but I came to realize there would never be enough money. I was getting raises and there was still always, there was always this, this constriction, but I need more. I need to work harder, get another promotion, get more money. There was always this, this thing that was saying, but if this happens, you won't have enough money. So mm-hmm. we have to get more. So I, I found that when, you are looking for safety outside of your body, it's highly conditional Mm. and it's never enough. Like even if there was more legislation to end racism or sexism and so on, I'd always be needing more. But but, Mm. what about this law? But what about this Mm -hmm. policy? And not to say that those things shouldn't change, but if my sense of safety is contingent upon them, I'll never feel safe. See, I love, I have to reflect that. It's like, we're not saying that change isn't beautiful, that people, you know, it'd be great if everyone wasn't a racist. Like, obviously we believe that. And does my safety depend on that happening? Because like you said, hold your breath. I mean, if we literally think about it, if I'm holding my breath for someone to change so I can feel safe, I'm going to pass out. Like there's nothing's going to happen there for me. That's not me living. And we're, I'm not, I'm not putting anyone down for living that way. That's why I designed the course. Because until you actually experience and practice somatics, you can't even imagine what we're talking about. Yeah. Because everything's intellectual before then. And I lived that way for years. So we're intellectually saying, no, but this would equal safety because someone wouldn't kill me. Like, I get it. I get the logics of why we think that. And when you go into that body and you notice, whoa, there's a universe of safety and comfort in me. You're just like untouchable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we have the Maya Angelou. I always said Maya Angelou's, and I'm like, no, there's only one. That's why we had Maya Angelou. That's why we have Oprah. You know, that's why we have Ianla. That's why we have Byron Katie. Like, these have been my teachers because they walk with that sense of safety. They don't wait for something to change to feel like they're empowered and they can do what they want. Even if they can't, they don't stop 
attuning to the reality they can in themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have their gorgeous work in the world. And I think it's just, uh, it's just endlessly satisfying for me to see other people who practice that and discover it, especially in our course, because yes. like, it's like, we are steeped in this. Like we teach it, we practice it. Like we're always learning about it. So it's, it's like our lives and a bit of, it's a bit of my obsession. I think it's become yours, but it's like in the course, when you see someone has never done this. And then by like week three, they tell us these shares, like for the first time in my 40 years, I'm not afraid to be a black woman walking down the street. We're like, mm. what? Or like the woman from the Middle East in the last one. Yeah. It was like, you are amazing. <laughs> like it blows my mind. Like, well, tell me something that blew your mind. Like, what have you heard? That's like, holy shit, these people, it's actually working for them. Yeah, it's a big one. <laughs> a, 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 I'll say a common one that I oftentimes yeah, yeah. see coming into the course is with relational trauma. And mm. uh, well, if my mom or dad changed, mm. then yes. I would feel safe. Or if, if, if my spouse did this, I, I'd feel safe, which again is logical. Okay. Logical. Understand <laughs> totally the logic logical. behind that. And then as they get into it, they under, they begin to realize, oh, my happiness or safety can't be contingent upon them. Mm. or to recognize that, oh, I may need to set a boundary. Our relationship dynamics may need to change. So the person may not need to change, That's but I is. may need to change how I relate to that person. That's, which, where I, that's what I love. This isn't about like, like I said, holding your breath or just, well, that person needs to change, but what do you, what might you need to do to assert your boundaries? That's Oof. what I love to see when people build the capacity for that. Yeah. And through, yeah, and through this work, I've come to see that boundaries are just expressions of our needs, which mm-hmm. we find somatically by experiencing our needs through sensation yeah. and such. So people actually, it's funny when we, when I try to change someone, I, that's bypassing. I'm bypassing my needs. I'm bypassing what my body's showing me and I'm oppressing them, which is strange for people to hear, but it's extremely dominating to force someone to change what is a result of their lived experience and trauma? I can't force a traumatized body to stop reacting to me in, let's say, like a narcissistic expression. I can't change that. And it's not my job to. Yeah. It is my job to notice what in me has a response and what does that response have to teach me? And then that response shows me everything. Like, oh, 30 minutes with them is perfect. 35 minutes, I get exhausted. And then I no, learn that's how much. I relate. <laughs> <laughs> and we start seeing these body alchemists, right? Just start noticing, oh, oh, okay, experiment, experiment A, experiment B. I see this person every Tuesday, these little experiments. Where do I hit my capacity? Mm-hmm. And then they learn if they can and they cannot. And I think I, I'm with you on that. I love to see how the relational trauma shifts from attuning to the other person's shortcomings to attuning to their own needs and desires and agency. Mm-hmm. Because most of us, there are rare rare occurrences and some of you listening are part of these rare occurrences where you cannot leave a relationship there are these moments where you have no money you have no way out you're literally locked inside a house you're being beat like that happens and i and i've worked with those people and i feel for them and i've helped them through that the majority of us feel that way and i'm not saying it's even any easier to feel that way it's a harsh feeling but we have more agency than we could ever imagine Yes. right and so as i see lighting up so again the somatics actually gets us in touch with that agency because if we're not bypassing sensation for the mind or through judgment of the other we're in direct relationship to the activation and those of you listening the activation is our first step of action we freeze in response to activation thinking it's a bad thing or it's going to be an anxiety attack or it's panic 
activation is actually the force coming in to say, we're going to get out of this, or we're going to call this person, or we're going to say no, or we're going to push our arms out. So activation, back to what we were saying about like the rupture being beautiful, all of the innate wisdom in the body of how to respond to a situation comes from activation. Mm. And until we learn how to be comfortable with activation, we actually freeze and numb that innate intelligence that tells us how to respond to a situation. So I I just went on like a tangent, but I was so lit up by what you were saying. I couldn't, I couldn't stop talking. What are, you, what are you hearing? Then we're going to close. Oh, so many things like um, <laughs> oh, agency. Yes. Like uh, it, oh, so many things coming up with that. Like I do think a lot of us, particularly when we have traumatized nervous systems, we don't recognize how much agency we actually mm-hmm. have. And that's part of, of the work. Like, mm-hmm. um, like even in my experience, uh, is social, political, and economic, systemic racism real? Absolutely. And part of that experience, what had been shown or taught to me was that the best way for you to support yourself is to work within a capitalistic, uh, Eurocentric organization that'll provide you stability and safety yeah. because you won't be able to provide for yourself outside of that structure. And I had to slowly begin to challenge that. Is so you believed true? it at first. You lived I believed that. it oh, wholeheartedly. Like, this is what I people believed hearing it. know like, that. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, this is the way that I can comfortably <clears throat> support myself sustainably. And I had to begin to challenge that. Like, I even remember looking at entrepreneurs and thinking, you silly minorities. Why are you? <laughs> so, because you just work in the Fortune 500 organization, get your check every two weeks. Yeah, you might have to smile, shut your jaw <laughs> a little bit, but it's okay. You, you are making life hard for yourself. Oh, yeah. Why would you do that? Um, and, and, and so I had told myself, like, you can't provide mm. for yourself outside of the structure mm. because of racism, sexism. It's just the way it is. And part of my healing journey was questioning that. Is that true? Do I have more agency than I thought? And do I have more agency than those who came before me? Because it mm. may have been true or even more true for them. But is that my experience? Um, and so I, 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 that was really just lighting me up. And then the other part, I think, is the connection between agency and rupture. Part of the difficulty, I think, with us asserting our agency is noting that oh, we are going to cause some rupture. And do we have the capacity to cause That's rupture? Right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And I have to speak these two parts before we close it. They're so good. So the last part, when you say our capacity for rupture, that's actually the primitive uh, instinct around freeze. The body says, if I fight or flight, there's going to be a rupture here, possibly mm. life loss. I'm going to freeze. And freezing can be both constriction or collapse. And so the body literally goes through this biological mechanism. Like when people say, like if if you all hear us say you have agency and you're thinking, I don't, I can't even pick up my feet. You're right, you can. Like you're in a freeze response. You're not choosing the freeze response. Let's say you can leave your husband who's an alcoholic or abusive or whatever it is. Um, not because you can't make money, you could, everyone can find a way to get out there and, and be safe. The, the, the more difficult part is the biology of the freeze that your body's in because it has been trained for thousands of years to know if there's a possible rupture, I'm safer through freezing. So when Camille's saying like capacity for the rupture, I can't express how important that is for those of you, especially those of you who freeze or fawn. When that capacity for rupture gets built, and I have done this with, with people in abuse, such abusive situations where they're locked in the house, they can't go anywhere. 
They build that capacity for rupture and then that freeze response melts and their flight response kicks in. Their fight response kicks in. This propellant to move them away from the situation kicks in. I think of Tina Turner running across the what an eight-lane highway, right, from Ike. That was a moment where her freeze thawed and her flight kicked in. And this is a woman with millions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of people around the world who love her and would do anything for her. She couldn't get out. She didn't have agency because she was physically frozen. So it's important to know the difference as well between agency and freeze. We all have agency, but we can't even physically access the agency to move if we're in a freeze. So the preliminary steps are thawing the freeze first, which I have plenty of episodes on. And we teach people this in depth, right in the course and the membership. So that, that felt really important. Um, I'm blanking on the first thing you said, because <laughs> I know it's time to close, but it, it was something, it was so important the way you said it, that I really wanted to say it again. But I'm also, I've learned not to grasp for things that aren't within my reality. So if it's not there, I'm going to let it float away. Oh, and when yeah. I, I write, and when I remember, I'll write it down. Um, do you remember a part of what you said? I was trying if to. it comes back to oh. me. I know, I, <laughs> I took us somewhere. Um, oh, and really, for me, I was sharing my own experience with yes, the questioning. You brought, my you brought agency. it. Yeah. The moment you said, oh, it brought it. Like, <laughs> you felt what you remembered in my body. It, it, it was when you said, is, is my agency different from those who came before me? I really wanted us to feel into that because that was a powerful moment for me. Because Camille is speaking about inherited intergenerational traumatic beliefs, which all of us have, regardless of any status or class or race, we all have them for different reasons. Even the ones of, I would say, like the dominators, like we think of like the Abercrombie, like, you know, quote, white boys, they have the inherited belief that you must always be the best. Like everyone has some inherited traumatic belief. And so if we all think for a minute, what was the traumatic belief that was passed down to me based on my parents and their parents' reality? Is that my reality? And that's a huge inquiry to ask ourselves. We do the not mine exercise in week yes. one, which is kind of like, you know, in, in the, the vein of this. But those of you listening, just to notice, are these beliefs out of date? Are they coming from a place where they were a proper response to the, re, the, you know, the reality of the times? And now they're living in me, but are not a proper response? Mm-hmm. Is the belief incongruent with my reality? doesn't make it feel less real, but is it incongruent with my reality? These simple little questions, they will show you so much information. Um, thanks for a, a dynamite conversation. Oh, Marika was it. stuck in traffic, all of you. If you're wondering, where's the, where's the third person? Where's Marika? Um, but we'll, next time we'll talk about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was on my list. But this was like, this was alive for me in the shower this morning. So it was perfect. I was just you and I to talk about it. Love it. Anything you want to add before we close? Um, no, I really enjoyed this conversation. I always love these. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, everybody, you take good care. So that's the end of today's episode. Notice where you feel the episode inside of your body. Those sensations, those expressions. That's how your body speaks to you. Sit with it. Be with it. And let whatever wants to come up, come up. Because all the wisdom you're looking for is right there in those sensations. If you want to go deeper into these practices or find more information about my work, 
please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.